and welcome to Happy Place with me, Fern Cotton. This is the show that asks how we can gently nudge ourselves towards more contentment each day. Today, I'm chatting to John Newman. I was so depressed and so angry and I had a mixture of ego, like bullied kid syndrome. Like I had all these things coming through at once that wanted to show that I had this and do this and and nail it. And it just felt like in a dream where you're reaching for something and it's slipping further away. And I just completely took it out on the people around me. I became so angry at the whole situation that relationships that had been going on a while just couldn't function anymore. I think I'm back at somewhere that's pleasing me as a kid and a child. John grew up on a council estate in Northern England, DJing on borrowed gear. He went on to become one of the country's biggest artists. Feel the Love, a collaboration with Rudimental, went straight to number one in 2012. His own debut single, Love Me Again, went to number one a year later. And in 2014, he teamed up with Calvin Harris on Blame, which broke the world record for the most streamed song in one day. Now, after a lot of soul-searching, John's carved a path back to his roots, curating hybrid sets that combine his signature live vocals with DJing. I loved getting to chat to John about what's brought him full circle back to where he started, and we talked a lot about the idea of pleasing and serving our inner child. We should be asking them what we want to do because they understand our joy best. I also really appreciated John's honesty in this chat. He calls fame a drug, and it was one that was particularly potent for him. There's also some great insight in here into how those horrible, salacious headlines work. I think you're going to really enjoy this chat. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalised card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Okay, let's do it. Here's the show. John Newman, how lovely to see you. It's very nice to see you. It's been a while, isn't it, actually? It has, yeah. I've been hiding a bit as well, which mm. I like. I love hiding. It's a great vibe. Hiding's so good. I also want to start by saying I think you've got the ultimate podcast voice. Like, everyone's going to be listening to this going, oh, yeah, keep talking, John. Like a warm brew. It's like a warm brew. It's like a warm <laughs> hug. It's just a great voice. Oh, that's really nice. It is, though. <laughs> got a lovely voice to listen that's to. Good. So, look, since I last saw you in the flesh, a whole lot has changed for you. And it seems like there's this kind of wonderful reinvention, but not in a contrived way. Yeah. In a way where you're sort of unravelling a bit, peeling back the layers and going Mm. back to perhaps a version of yourself before you got famous, would you say? Yeah. There's this amazing story about Amy Winehouse. My My old tour manager used to... Tour manager. And then they were doing a video in Camden and he said that 
Amy was having a bad hair day, so they, they ran down to one of the fancy jet shops and she was just like, get me one of them beehive things and chucked it on. And that was Amy Winehouse captured in however long it took for them to get to the shop and back. And for me, that's quite a painful story almost because I'm like, why? And I feel the same way that I was captured within six months of my life and I think it's something that, like, totally builds up. Like, we we take inspiration from so many different areas. But the world is kind of naive sometimes. And, like, we don't like change. We like to capture something that's fresh and new and then use this template to continue in our heads something that's so simple. And I think that happened with me. It was just a small time of my life that was captured. And I tried to move and move and move, and it, and it just wasn't possible in the in the frame that I'd set up around me once love me again was out everyone was just like do that again do that again do that again and I was like but it's so unique you can't do that like and yeah so it's just felt like the time came I mean it's a way bigger story than that but the time just came to like crunch time for me that change needed to happen and I think there was a quite a large gap in between that change happening but moral of the story is, and to answer your question, yeah, I think I'm back at somewhere that's pleasing me as a kid and a child. And that's super difficult, and I'm sure we'll get into it. But, like, actually pleasing that kid is a really valuable thing that's bringing me happiness every day and not just happiness in the way of, oh, there's so much to talk about. But, like, that's why it feels super weird doing a podcast because I've learned so much about this whole thing, but... I like to call fame and stardom and everything that I've been through a drug. And I think you're like the drug dealer and you get built up the drug by many, many people. And you got to be really careful because you kind of give that drug out to family members and uncles and aunties that go in the local pub and get free pints because they're full of the drug and feeling great from it. But it feels super nice to not be feeling that now and being aware of what that is. And this is a a real joy, a real happiness that pleasing that kid is feeling it in, in the real light and not in like this murky kind of red carpet champagne getting fed full of the drug kind of way. Yeah. Well, you but, get um, told what should make you feel happy. We all get told that, whether we're in this industry or not, that certain things will make us feel great and it doesn't add up a lot of the time and you might reach that goal or become a very successful musician and you're still going, yeah, but I, there's something missing. I still don't feel it. So when you were the John Newman, which I know is you, but <laughs> when you were the version of you with the quiff, with the stripe in the hair, with the suits on, singing with your soulful voice, what what was missing or did you feel trapped? What was the feeling you were experiencing at that time? I mean, life is about, I've, I've done a lot of therapy recently and for a bit, but I, I generally feel like life is about capturing the moment at the time, living in the presence and enjoying that. So to be honest, it was great. And I, that takes so much for me to say. And I think it would take so much for anyone that has had number ones consistently, that has been invited to every party, that's driven around in chauffeur cars, that's been on private jets and, and, and lived the life like completely. That's really difficult to turn around and say that was a great moment because you want it to be now and you're like I want that to be now but I've grown so much that I'm like 
I don't want that again. I actually don't want that. I want to feel joyful and happy in success of music and, and things like that. So I can't remember what you asked me. <laughs> so my John questions are irrelevant, John. Remember no, that. No, Your answers are the bit that we need. It's, um, but it's so interesting because, yes, you know, you can look back and say that was a super exciting time and it felt surreal or whatever was going on in your head. But you can also sense that it's ephemeral. It doesn't necessarily stick around. Yeah. And so what you're trying to tap into now is something that feels a bit more real, maybe, or, or you're more in control of it? I think it felt real at the time, and that was the issue, is that when that first burst happened, it was completely real. I remember my first day in r coming into my tiny little studio in Crouch End, where I was living, and he said to me, are we pop or are we cool? And I said, we're cool pop. And he said, that doesn't exist. We can't do that. I don't know what that is. And it generally did feel that way. Like, that's what I was trying to achieve. I was listening to a lot of Motown. I was listening to a lot of 90s rave. I remember first doing Annie Mac's, like, session, and we did Strike You Sure Do as a cover. So it was that total crossover. My brief was always, if I write a dance tune, what does it sound like if the Motown musicians play it? So it was kind of like that brief. So... I was like generally invested and it was a build-up of childhood influences. I like to call it a bucket of influence that I build before every project and it felt so full and tipped it out on the floor and it was beautiful and I really, really loved it. Like I thought I was uber proud of what I was doing. It was new, it was exciting. Everyone was spending loads of budget on me, which is great. Nothing better than a bit of retail therapy in the music industry. <laughs> Getting the best musicians and all that. No, but I generally loved it. And the second record was the same. Even more retail therapy. Got like Michael Jackson's musicians and everything on it. But the tunes weren't good enough. And I know that deep in my heart. So that's fine. But yeah. But boy, boy, it's all learning, isn't it? It's all looking back and nothing's ever perfect. We no. can always look back and want to do things differently. So now you're moving back to what you loved as a kid, which is being behind decks, DJing, producing music. Is it easy to leave behind what you'd already built? I know you're not leaving it behind entirely. You've built a beautiful platform, so you're able to now move into new areas and, and instantly, successfully so. You've already headlined Tomorrowland, which is one of the biggest, the biggest dance festival mm. in the world. But is it hard to sort of leave behind that era of your life to start again? Maybe a year ago, yeah. Like now I'm like, no, like I'm good. The hardest bit that is that does it is the bin man or the the person in the town that you're living near that reminds you of that song or that time. That's the hardest bit because you want them to, look, it's like on, on your bad days, on my bad days, I want them to sing the new track. Like I want to feel that feeling like I did the first time, but... Yeah, I think the key for me now is to create something that's new, fresh and exciting. And I, I am totally going the hard way around this. Like, this is the stupidest thing ever, actually. Why? <laughs> I just think it is. Like, I spoke, like my brother, right, I called him and I was having a... Like, there's so many challenges in doing this. Like, to be honest, coming here, I feel a little bit embarrassed talking to you. Like, I get that Why? thing. Because I'm like, I feel like I'm not being... Ah, oh, it's just such a weird like juxtaposition where I like feel like I'm not being true to the John or the people of what they wanted originally or what the people that supported them and gave me success. It feels a bit like 
I'm doing something totally different and it might feel a little disrespectful. But No, I think it goes back to what you said initially about how we don't like change. We like and again it's it's not just for people in the public eye where people make assumptions about who you are or what they think they know of you. We like everybody to sort of say the same. Yeah. And when people it could be as simple as someone deciding to put new boundaries down in a dynamic, people don't like it. Like oh, wait, completely. wait, you've already you've you've always said yes, why are you saying no? You know, we don't we find it really hard to recalibrate and see someone in a different light. So I think I can totally see what you're saying. I've certainly been through it myself in ways and I will still have, it will be, you know, someone that I meet in a coffee shop or whatever who goes, oh, I haven't seen you on TV for years. Like, yeah. It's because I don't do it. Yeah. But the what worst. I'm doing now <laughs> feels, and I have to sort of go, bye-bye, ego, please leave the room. Yeah. There's no place for you here, ego, because I know what I'm doing feels better and truer. Yeah. But people will probably still have an idea that what I did before was shinier or whatever, whatever their perception of it is. So I totally hear what you're saying. You get it a lot from people that know you a lot as well because it yeah. reminds them of when they had the greatest name drop of all time. <laughs> and it's well annoying And they could that. get in the club. Yeah. Not with me, but with you. Yeah, yeah. Well. <laughs> so yeah. what is your new, what is this new phase giving you? How are you pleasing little young John Newman, the kid? How are you pleasing him? Yeah, it feels a little bit like a therapy session now where it's quite blah, but I'm sure it'll settle down. <laughs> um, yeah, I th- I w- what I was just saying is like, I-, I think the easiest way to explain it is the transition between where I was and where I am. And I think, so basically, like, second record, went and recorded it in LA, put all my work into it, all my hard effort. But like the standard format, without delivering the greatest thing you've ever delivered or my head being in a mess, like, the the reality is I got too egotistical. I started thinking I was way too cool and didn't perform the best I could in a studio. I've got a pop mind and I didn't, I didn't write pop hits. What did I expect? That's fine. I still loved what I made, but just maybe don't predict it to be commercial if that's the case. So then it went on and on and on and on. And then the music industry changed and it was like single, single, singles. And I just didn't feel right. And I didn't feel good. And I have to apologize to anybody that they affected, but I was so depressed and so angry and couldn't handle I had a mixture of ego like bullied kid syndrome like I had all these things coming through at once that wanted to show that I had this and do this and and nail it and it just felt like in a dream where you're reaching for something and it's slipping further away and I just completely took it out on the people around me I, I I became so angry at the whole situation that relationships that had been going on a while just couldn't function anymore so I felt like the, the cleanest and healthiest thing to do was to be honest and say I'm I'm in a really dark place and I need I need to stop. So I did and for nearly off it was when COVID hit. I think when I talk about the ego side of it and, and the the partying side of it and everything that was going on, like I realised that that guy was just running away from like I I was twenty two, twenty three, twenty four, like my bullied years and my my troublesome upbringing was still so close without realising and realised I was just running away from that, running away from all issues, 
going to the next town, going to the next place, keeping myself busy. Couldn't even sit in my own body without shaking and worrying. And actually, when I, I decided I, I'm done and, and got rid of my label, got rid of my managers and just sat at home, of like within minutes, dark thoughts start coming in straight away. And that was the hardest bit of this. I think it's like, there's a lot of mental stuff in there. It's not just like as, as artists and, and creatives, we're, we're, it's such a thin line between creativeness and inside my brain. And I think I just broke down in a really bad way and let it in and like grief, let it in and yeah, it, it was pretty worrying. I had attractive thoughts of last days and things like that that started becoming more regular and really started to struggle and uh, and decided that they weren't attractive thoughts and it was quite serious and I needed to just even pull back the layers more and more to the point where my only ambition on every day was to get in cold water and go for a walk and do a bit of DIY and that was a painful time because it was these two conflicts of personalities this person that was defining himself as a person and then this character that still existed but luckily it was COVID so that character could just stay out of it for a bit it was like ground zero time it's about a year later when I at this out. This is like the darkest line in the story, but when I started laughing again and smiling properly, like it was that, like got crazy. But I think that's extremely courageous in the moment to have made a choice to strip everything back and move towards that pain. Because actually, what you could do is just keep piling on the work. Keep making more albums. Completely. Keep the quiff in the hair and keep on singing like you're singing and just keep busy. And I think we've all done that in varying degrees in different circumstances. But it takes a lot to go, I think I've got to get everything out of the picture and just feel it. Like yeah. that is terrifying. I also think it came to celebrity time for me. Like they started calling the... Uh, the TV shows, the, uh, okay, so you've, you know, you're John Newman that we used to know as this. Do you want to eat a kangaroo bollock? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Do you want to dress up like a fucking mouse on primetime TV? Or what? All the offers <laughs> that came, all of them came in. <laughs> Nothing wrong with them, just not right for you. No. I hear you. Well, I yeah, hear you. I was like, nah, I'm not a celebrity. I'm actually an awful celebrity. <laughs> like, I'm the worst celebrity, to be honest. It's the um, cringiest word ever. Yeah, ever, really struggle ever. with it. Can't you're, you're, to... a, you're a creative, you're an artist, you want to make art. True, and celebrities struggle to go to a pub as well. And I love going to the pub. <laughs> I love, like, just walking my dog yeah, too in right. a jacket covered in paint. And actually, when I submerge myself and somebody goes, John Newman, in the middle of it, I'm like, oh, no, I feel so exposed. So, yeah. I just didn't want to do that. Like, I had a taste of it. Like, I tried things like put Keith Lemon in a rally car and drove around and tried breaking my own celebrity world. And I was like, can't do this. Yeah. So when you realised you were going to potentially be more intuitive and move towards, oh, cold water, that, that might work. Yeah. I like doing DIY. I mm. like DJ. Maybe that could become part of what I'm, what I'm doing and who I am. 
At what point did you notice this is working? I am actually climbing out of this dark hole that I'm in now. Yeah, like like I said, there was like days came in where I started smiling again and laughing again. And it's simple things like in my relationship with my wife, not deflecting and running away like a child, like the, the child that used to go and hide in a shed or these things like wasn't there anymore and started to feel me again. And it wasn't until then that I, when I started feeling better, I was like, I, I miss something. I just miss something like, what do I miss? And it was just being creative. So creativity to me comes in many different formats. I, I just love designing things, whether that's a song or a piece of clothing or whatever it is. I, I just like being creative. That's why I'm not very good at the celebrity side of it. I like to be fully submerged in something creative in that way. And just opened up my laptop and think I made like a 15-minute complete instrumental progressive dance song and then started playing it around my house i was like this is great love this no vocals on it so this is great started building up the idea and, and and that's when it came in i started feeling like oh wow i started to feel like that kid again like in a really good way like i've put that side of my life aside for a minute letting it let go of the hold on me and just like was a really magical amazing time just sat in a bedroom again making instrumental dance tracks i was like as I do, started dreaming of how do I take it to Wembley or whatever it is. And um, I started bringing in manifestation that I do a lot and done throughout my life on, well, I need to perform it live. I used to be a DJ, I could still DJ. So that's when that came in. And I wanted to change my name. I wanted to like come up with like a name like The Weekend. Something totally different. The Monday. Yeah. The Monday. <laughs> The Bank Holiday. <laughs> the Bank Holiday Mondays. That's a good name. Good. I'm having that. <laughs> Did you know the weekend's stopping being called the weekend? So what? Maybe he's looking for names. We could get in there. We could give that to him. The Bank Holiday Monday. <laughs> That's <is> so good. <laughs> it's so good. If you just changed now from like the Monday. The Bank Holiday Monday. He's moving on the oh, Tuesday. <laughs> That's so good. But yeah, just, and then I, uh, contacted my lawyer I was like I feel ready I feel like I need a manager again and then uh, found new managers um, and obviously they were straight away like nah John Newman works John Newman works we can do something different with that and that was a, that was a painful conversation because I was like uh, no don't tell me what to do kind of for the first time in two years or something and then uh yeah, just started the journey again and did the Whitney remake and Getter took that on, David Getter, and, it, and that did well and, and that was amazing and it was kind of toes back in the water. And and to be honest, it's like still a slow building process, still early days for it, but I financially continue. I live somewhere that I love. I've just had a child. I've got my wife and I'm... The most important thing is that I'm really happy as me. And like, I can really see it in your it. face when you're talking about this stuff and your creativity and the life that you've built. You can see it in your face. And it's, it's so interesting because I think for so many of us, we need to go back to who we were or what we liked before. So often there's that cliche question of, what would you tell your younger self? And yeah. I always go, 
No, I want her to tell me yeah, yeah, what yeah, to yeah. do because she knew way better. I'm an adult that's gone through all of these things and built up all these ridiculous ideas that probably don't actually even stand no. up. Yeah. I want to go back to that. What did I like doing? For me, it was drawing, painting, simple, simple stuff. But if I do it, I still feel that joy and elation. Yeah. And I think as adults, we don't give ourselves permission to go back there and go, oh, no, that's who I am. That's what I liked. And it doesn't mean we have to become childlike or we have to totally embody that person because obviously we, we want to grow, we want to learn. But the joy that we had was much more readily available usually. I know that you, you obviously had some hardship going on in your no, childhood. But, yeah, but the joy totally agree, you yeah. could cultivate with something that you really loved. Would you have come to that conclusion without therapy? I think I did. But only in its very early stages of not quite understanding what I'd managed to curb if you know what I mean, I think it like because it was so severe. It felt like I literally had like some crazy tornado and hurricane just behind me at all times, ready to take me. So once once I'd managed to get rid of that, just by finding me, yeah, like I, I instantly felt better. But then I did start to learn. I can only explain it as that then uh, it was still continuous, like this this sphere of negative energy was still triggered by small little points. So so many people were reliant on me uh, financially, actually. And and then when, because I'd, I'd gone with a good heart to try and look after everybody, that when, and, and, and then with my success and all these things, and then when I, I kept, like, we all went un, under great financial pressure in COVID, it, it just was like too much for me. I couldn't handle it. And it was just like, that would trigger it or this would trigger it. And I put it into this sphere of negative energy. But what I had done is managed to, on good days, sit myself away from it. But all it took was one little trigger to get rid of it. But I'd managed to separate. I wasn't blended anymore. And that side of me that wasn't blended anymore was the one that said, let's talk to a therapist. And now I, I can safely say that I, I can feel that, like, I can stand on the top of a mountain and feel the wind hitting me in the cold rain, but it feels re-energising re and amazing that I can handle that. And I think that's what I've managed to do. I've turned them into individual points that I can deal with on a daily basis that don't ignite this fear of energy, of, of negative energy. And I think that is the greatest thing and one of the greatest achievements alongside having a child that I, I, I've done, I'm so proud of myself. I'm so, so proud of myself. It was like, I didn't know which, where, the, I couldn't even see a door to leave through. I had no idea what was the next steps in my life. And now I'm just in a position where as long as I do what I love, that's great. I still have days where it's so frustrating, like where I'm like, yeah, but I'm starting to realise that's just I'm a perfectionist I'm, and I'm, like highly creative i'm i'm fully focused on what i want to achieve i use manifestation which can sometimes be amazing but sometimes can be a burden because you're like well i can see it and it's super simple so why don't i get that so i'd still have days where i'm frustrated but as you can see there I'm, I'm, that's in within my job and how i operate my job and not Everything. I am not my job anymore. My job is my job and I'm John. No. And also you've got the awareness. I think it's always the key to any type of change is seeing your own behavioural patterns. We can all be totally blind to them and just go, 
it's that person's fault or this just happens to me all the time. But actually to go, I know how I work. I know what my triggers are is so, so helpful. And I'm sure, again, there's something that you were sort of discovering during therapy. During that time of discovery and having therapy, did you pinpoint where that pain was coming from, why you were moving into areas of depression, why at times you felt suicidal? Was it childhood? Was it fame? Was it a bit of both? Did you locate it? I think fame, the early start of fame was childhood. Like, I, I, I think a lot of us get famous when we're children. Like, everyone's like, no, I was 21 when I got famous. I'm like, yeah, you're a child. Like, we were just the older side of being children. I think there's this whole 16, 18 thing, but I think we go until 24, 25. I mean, I didn't feel anything different till I was 30. Yeah, like, no, I sometimes still think, am I 18? I know, you're, it's in, you're in your 40s, babe. Get yeah, over yeah. it. <laughs> totally, yeah. God. Go home. <laughs> it's awful. 6am. <It's> <laughs> <laughs> no, no, those days are gone. Yeah, they went They're for me gone. as well. They, I was like, they've gone. got to go immediately. Gone, gone, gone. Um, yeah, but I think... Yeah, I believe that actually we're completely shaped as children. And I think that's why we still feel like kids in our heads because that was when we were shaped. And now we're just trying to micro-adjust almost, but our, our format is made. I think growing up, I grew up in a, a pretty small town in the heart of Yorkshire. And uh, my dad left when I was four years old, which became a very turbulent relationship where we don't understand mummy and daddy are Peter and Jackie at the time. We think that's mummy and daddy and daddy's the worst man on the planet because he's left us. And yeah, my dad was, um, he struggled and, and now before I thought he was acting in a way that was completely irresponsible and, and upset me in so many ways but then learned that I've been through a lot. Maybe he was going through a lot as well, and that's okay. Later, I actually built up a relationship with my dad after all this as well. He recently passed away, but amazing, I think, that I got that time with him. Don't know, still question that. But yeah, so so we grew up in the middle of Yorkshire. I was quite different to everyone else. At eight years old, I wanted a welder because I wanted to turn a wheelbarrow into a go-kart that I could fly down a hill. I love that. I got the welder, I did that actually. Still got the picture of that go-kart in my house now. <laughs> uh, so I spent a lot of time hiding in a shed and I think I was escaping a lot of things. When my dad left, my mum had to take up a lot more work. So I spent a lot of time uh, by myself, but that's that's fine. And uh suit to that, so instantly, like if we relate my childhood to now... I completely feel individual. I do like to spend a lot of time alone now. Um, luckily, my wife does as well in that way, and we both have a good understanding of that. Yeah, I, I think it completely came in I, I, the, when feeling different. I just think that kids in a little town got completely bored. I was slightly different, and then the issues came. That's easy, and then I started going through stages of, like, was I the best I could be? Was I the kindest I could be? Did I influence these things? But... I think I'm going to head down a wormhole if I start thinking about that. But if you think about that, I felt so unwanted constantly. The girl that I loved was too embarrassed to be with me. The, my best friends was so easy to turn on me because if other people were there, they didn't want to be embarrassed to hang around with me. And I think 
that really, really, really hurt me after the rejection of my dad and the rejection of everyone around me and me trying to do my art. People rejected that because it was different. I'd, I'd, I actually started to feel a bit like a burden in life and I think I moved to Leeds to uh, study music, thankfully, and uh, felt wanted, like properly wanted by... Like, I know that, like... I don't want my mum to listen to this and feel like it was on her part whatsoever. I felt completely loved and wanted by her. It was just the normal surroundings. I just didn't. And moved to Leeds and, and finally felt like weird is cool and, like, felt cool. But then got thrown into stardom. And if we think about my up, not upbringing, that's the wrong word. I don't Again, I don't want to upset anyone close to me about an upbringing, but, like, my childhood that felt might have been turbulent and unwanted, then I think to then be thrown into stardom is... Well, you're really wanted by <sighs> everyone. Full of the greatest drug. It's like the limitless pill. It's like straight in you. Yeah. It's a big jump. Amazing feeling. It's a big jump. And it's, I think when you're, especially in the music industry, which I've been on the edges of for years and years, and you see the insane furore around new artists and the attention and just the chaos. It's absolute chaos. And it mm. looks exciting. From the outside, you're going, wow, that looks super exciting and euphoric. But not all of it's real. You know, very little of it's real. There'll be a few people perhaps on your team or that you've bonded with that really care about you. But all those people cheering for you or shouting at you, that's not a real transaction of friendship or anything that's necessarily mm. going to buoy you as a human and keep you feeling boosted. So it's, it's intoxicating to experience that, being so wanted, having felt extremely unwanted. Completely marvellous. Mm. Amazing. Dangerously marvellous. Yeah, that's the, the pain of it, is that one day you've missed... I, like, I forgot how to pay bills and, and like, everything. It got that to the point where when it all comes back down to reality, you're like, I don't even know how to pay my bills. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I've missed years of my life in this mad dream, like complete mad dream. But at the time, you're like, this is amazing. I'm welcome, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> like, you just see your circle. I watched this video of me when I, like, I, I, I went to LA for two years to make my second record. And I watched this, like, behind the scenes of, um, of me making this come and get it thing. And I'm sat there with a cigarette in my mouth and sunglasses on. I'm like, <laughs> I literally thought I was Alex Turner. I love that you wore the shades inside. That's such a tick. I thought I was love. so cool. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, I think I was pretty cool. But I, way, I thought I was way cooler. I mean, I watch me now and I'm like, shut up, mate. <laughs> I think that's just age gets us to that point yeah. of going, yeah. Yeah, totally. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Knowing how much childhood informs who you become, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's wonderful knowledge to have. And again, it's utterly terrifying as a parent. I worry mm. about it every day as a parent. 
Have I made the right decision? Am I doing the right thing? You know, every bit of the day I worry about that with my kids and and how they're growing up. Do you, having had a turbulent childhood, worry now you're a parent, look at your every move as to how that's going to affect your... Is it... You have a son, is it? A daughter, sorry. A daughter. Yes, very much so. But it's... It's hard. Like we are, we are pre-mapped, and I have to look at often to the same gender. So my dad is unfortunately my father in that way. Like, and like not in a way that unfortunately my father. It turned out we had a. I've never had a closer connection to anyone in my life, but uh, I have to remind myself that that was fathering to me, and didn't exist so that's not what this child needs I need to be there but it's so hard like it's I can feel it in my blood and in my veins that on a daily basis it's like not run but like like it's just that prioritizing thing is super hard to balance and I think I know inside myself that as a kid I I wanted that so I think that really helps I think because it was kind of so severe that my dad had left and seen him with another woman and starting a new life I think it was like that was so severe in my head that now at least it it kind of is that severe it's not just like dad's there but never see him he's always at the pub and always gone I think I was only four as well so I didn't get too much of that parenting put on me almost in that way so it, it it kind of feels like a new thing to like I've started looking at other dads almost being like how do they father how do they balance how do they, they do that when I say like don't know whether, how to prioritize I just think that's completely natural that's a new parenting thing oh. it's not I'm not and I it's think it's absolutely crazy being yeah. a parent yeah it's like everyone, it's wild and I think you get this thing when you're like go to before becoming a parent you'd like go and chat with some friends, meet them or whatever, and they'd be like, oh, God, it's so much, and and da 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 and you'd be like, oh, yeah, shut up, yeah, shut whatever. up. And now you're like, I get it. It's, like, <laughs> it's really hard. Hello? And it's really tiring. <laughs> you still want to talk about it. <laughs> I know, yeah. it's absolutely mad. It's bonkers. So you've also been, we've talked about mental health, and you've had, you know, not only periods of depression, anxiety as well, that you've been incredibly open and honest about, which I think is incredibly helpful. You've also had health challenges that you've mm. been very open about. And I've, I've, I'm pretty sure that we've talked about it maybe on the radio before yeah. about having brain tumours. Mm. How do you think that's affected your perspective on life? Do you think that has given you moments where you're able to just zoom out and see life's bigger picture? Yeah. Unfortunately, as well, I think one thing that we didn't mention in my childhood was death. And I think... I lost two of my really close friends in a car accident when they were 16. Lost all my grandma, granddad. My favourite auntie went. (laughs) Like, they were just dropping like flies. So I think that's a concept that I'm... And then when you go into the idea of at 21, just before I have, like, my biggest breakthrough, I get a brain tumour. Well, more technical wording around it, but... Yeah, it, it becomes quite odd at a young age to realise that we live and then we die and I think that's fine actually like so then we should live and we should live to the best of our abilities and we should live all the time and I I really hope that 
since realizing many things that people feel touched to be around me, that they feel blessed and, and that my life has given something to everyone else's. So I think you do learn that. Um, but I think I, I, I was young. I first got diagnosed. So it, it happened basically. I was uh, getting ready for the the big hurrah. And uh, like I was living, so if people don't know, I lived in uh, Crouch End, worked in a pub there. Uh, I was giving one of the locals free beers, got busted and got kicked out. So I had to make a decision and I decided to go on the dole and go and live with Pierce from Rudimental. And we'd made feel the love basically within this kind of communal thing and not giving in. And we just... Um, absolute bangers. Absolute bangers, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> and we didn't know what we'd made at all. Like we just wrote, like not giving in was about my mate trying to jump off a bridge Feel the Love was just, Kezi had just written this hook and we just did it. And it all just felt wonderful. Like Piers was playing in my band and Keys. And we were just, I was just going around London doing small pub gigs. It felt amazing. And then it was Feel the Love that went around the music industry. And I basically got my record deal, minted. Like, not minted, but at the time, felt pretty minted. So spanked it all. But there was one issue was that I thought I was going blind at this time and like everything was like getting well hazy in my eyes, like I had full on like no peripheral vision. So I went to local boots auditions, <laughs> which I always find funny. Glad you do. <laughs> <laughs> I'll nip to boots, they'll sort yeah. it out. Yeah. Uh little did I know they obviously it's freaked too big out. For boots. Very too much big for boots. Too big they for were boots. like, you need to go to the eye hospital immediately. I always remember my missus coming with me at the time and they would give me them, uh, what is it, things where they basically blind you temporarily. Anesthetic in the eye. Oh, right. And I remember just walking around the um, Moorfields Eye Hospital like just completely blind, like, what is going on? This is mental. But then I remember them saying, okay, all looks okay. Worryingly, you need to go to the Hospital of Neuroscience and Neuroscience. It's like neuroscience. What's that? I was like, that sounds pretty cool. Realised it's the brain. I was like, oof. Anyway, went through it. Sat there. Was told I had very large tumour that had been growing for many years, which actually explained the reason I couldn't grow a beard. Oh, really? Yeah, in my pituitary gland, which sits at the bottom of the brain. Yeah. Should be the size of P, was the size of a golf ball and completely crushing my optic nerves. So my eyes are going like mental. Yeah, the full lot. So that was pretty like, pretty awful, to be honest. But the the thing about it is that I was okay. And that's actually kind of the most painful thing that I was okay. What, mentally? Yeah. Why do you think that was? Because it brings in that childhood thing that that's that wasn't important to me. My importance was I was a calculated character in every way, trying to succeed to prove everybody wrong. And at the time, I just I was just going through the greatest time of my life. So I just didn't want it to stop me. But it was my mum were worried about my brother and and, and the people around me. So I, I was just like, I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm all right. I think when it hit me was I led down on the bed uh, and they were about to give me the anaesthetic and uh, I just broke down in complete tears I remember and then my brother said that 
<laughs> my brother said I was really upset, and then I shot up and I went, "Oh, this shit's amazing!" And then collapsed down, <laughs> collapsed down, and that was me gone for seven hours. Woke up with two tampons up my nose, in a right mess. But yeah, heard my song play on the radio whilst I was laid in a hospital bed was pretty crazy. How surreal! What a surreal time of your life. I weren't allowed to tell my record label. Wow. They had, they couldn't know what was going on because they'd just given me a large sum of money and couldn't tell them I was on in hospital bed. That was what? pretty crazy. Like crazy. And I was like led there and I remember there's this old guy called George from Guernsey. He'd fallen off a roof. It's like, yeah, George, that's me on radio there. And he's like, whatever. I was like, this is mental. It I was so mental. You couldn't tell them. That's unbelievable. No, it was crazy. I had to just go radio silence. So obviously with that in mind, I was worried about dates coming up. Yeah, of course. New opportunities. And actually, Radio 1 were doing their Ibiza thing. And me and the rudimental guys had been invited out to perform there. And I knew that was in three weeks after my surgery. So I sat, I think I did three days of being like pretty much paralysed in a way. And then I was like, I need a cigarette, I need a shower, I need to get out of here. <laughs> so first thing was go have a cigarette covered in wires. Thankfully don't smoke anymore, but yeah. Good. And, um, and then I was like, right, I'm going to go get in the shower, I think. And they're all just like, back in bed, back in bed. Every day. I mean, I used to wear the suit on a daily basis at that point. I was like fully in the... Yeah, you were in the zone. Yeah, and uh, I was sat on my bag waiting every day for doctors to come. And they finally let me out after about six days. I remember getting on my bike when I got out, going down to Holloway Road to Argos for something. Just came straight off it, like badly. I was like, oh, man, oh, no. this is, it just passed out again. So I think it was a bit early. But So yeah, three weeks or two weeks after, I can't remember what it was, I'm stood on stage in Ibiza. And then that was it. Pop star, here we go. Mental. Wow, I mean, what a start to your music career. So mental. What it was like one start. last little jig. It was like, it was crazy, but yeah. But then did you, but you, so that brain tumor was removed, but then it came back? So yeah, we, we spoke before about the whole like um, temptation of celebrity vibes come calling. I, I like, um, hopefully after this podcast, you're like, yeah, John's obviously here to enjoy making music. He's a musician. Like, he's not celebrity he's a musician and he's an artist and I think I really am a studio rat in that way and I think got to a point in my career where people <laughs> like the press department were getting more desperate than the A&Rs and it was like there was this whole thing going on where basically uh, I released this track called Ole factually Calvin had written it uh, and then somebody put out in the press that he's, this song that he'd written that I was going to perform was about his breakup with Taylor Swift. Neither of them wanted to talk about it, completely understandably. So here he is, the messenger, and and the press department is pushing it. I've just got the whole world's media wanting to know about Calvin Harris and Taylor Swift's relationship on me. I was in, like, turmoil. I was like, I'm, what am I doing? I was like, this is awful. Like, this is exactly what I don't want. I think it was like, I must have done like 50 interviews just to keep everyone happy and not talking about it. And then I remember being at the iTunes Festival and turning around and saying, she'd ask me like 10 questions. I'm like, come on, this is brutal. Next minute, bam, all over newspapers. John Newman labels Calvin Harris, Taylor Swift relationship is brutal. So this is mental. And it was, I was doing a photo shoot and I remember someone, a girl from The Sun came to, 
talked to me and I was so distracted by that whole thing going on and the the annoyance in it and like step like Calvin's a friend of mine like tiptoeing around the subject trying not to say anything or whatever it was in because I'd been so exposing that oh it was awful awful and then uh I basically just mentioned my brain tumor being back and then because the Calvin and Taylor thing had died down and I wasn't saying much whew, the next wave of press went out that I've got cancer and I'm about to die of cancer and a brain tumor and I was like oh my god I was just being tested you can understand now why it just like got in such an awful place in my head like the whole job and uh, when I'm just trying to make music and um, not like there's just a wave of complete nonsense actually that went out everywhere it is so weird everyone sending you messages saying sorry and everything when really the reality is is that yes I had a returning tumour benign tumour in my pituitary gland that was being very well monitored and absolutely tiny compared to the last one that nobody gave a shit about. Yeah. And next minute I'm getting flowers and stuff sent to my house like I'm about to die. I'm like, this is mental. So, yeah, the, the, like, the, the truth in the honesty is is that you might go on Google now and search John Newman. It might say dead, cancer, all these words which didn't help to me wanting to take a break because everyone thinks I'm either dead or got cancer somewhere. Oh, my somewhere. God, that pressure. That's <laughs> it's awful. so mental. And then, um, yeah, basically the, the reality is that I'm just monitored on a yearly basis. I haven't had that same tumor removed yet. I will do by amazing people at the hospital. And I'll go through six weeks of radiotherapy. I have good discussions with my hospital and we'll work out when the time's right. But, uh, yeah. Hopefully this doesn't become another press thing. No, I think they burned me out. I think no, I'm good. No, the good thing about <laughs> podcasting is there's there's context and there's nuance so people yeah. can listen to the whole chat and yeah. you're not going to take one little soundbite and make it a big thing. You know, listen to the whole chat. You'll hear, hear your actual thoughts on things and your actual story, which is, I think, why I love podcasting, certainly, but why I think listeners like it because it's not some salacious headline or something that's been yeah, just yeah. plucked out of obscurity and like you've been through people sending you flowers and not even actually checking in to yeah, go, yeah. what is going on here? You yeah, know, we can't change You have the this, space yeah. to say it and you yeah. have the space to tell the stories and it's it's really important. And I think actually your your honesty about your health and the grounded approach that you have towards it is extremely encouraging and supportive of other people either going through it or family members going through it to hear you talk about it in the way that you just have I think is is really helpful no totally and I think I've, I've been a part of the brain tumor foundation since yeah. this and seen you know I'm, I'm definitely one of the lucky ones and very fortunate I'm one of the lucky ones and we all go through things and I think there's some great supportive people out there to talk to and I think yeah, I don't like. I, I never want to put a negative thing on it. It it is what it is. Some of us, some of us have to go through it, and that's just the end of it. That's annoying. Yeah. In in the first place, we nobody should have to go through that in the first place. Yeah. So that's kind of where it lies with me. I don't want to go any further on that. Yeah. I think that's my own personal experience, but I can't speak for anyone else or do anything else. So. No, well, you you never. If can. people it's... find that positive, that's really good. Yeah, but, I yeah. think they I think they definitely will. Yeah. 
I mean, I have loved talking to you. We've covered so much and I I knew it would be real talk. I knew it wasn't going to be floating around the edges of things. Yeah. But I really appreciate your honesty and your storytelling. And it's just, it's so good to see that you're in such a, a happy place. I was actually about to say that for real without realising. <laughs> but it's, it is so good to see you lighting up talking about where you're at in life and your new projects and I wish you all the best with it thank you so much and I've uh, very much enjoyed it it feels like we've been through this whole crazy ride and then ended at the end but I think the most important thing is that yeah I really am happy and um, definitely happy after this conversation it feels really good as well so (laughs) thanks John thank you John, it's so good to have you back and to hear that you're doing what you love just best. Thanks so much for your time. John's latest smash hit single is called Call Your Name. And honestly, it sounds like he's only just getting started, so I can't wait to hear what comes out of the studio next. You can see what epic live performances he puts out soon. All right, back next week. But in the meantime, if anything about that chat particularly touched you, then do get involved on Instagram at Happy Place Official. I love reading your thoughts and your stories. Until next time, a massive thanks again to John, to the producers of this episode, Sophie King and Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio, and to you, because you're ace. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com